Hello, I'm Sam, and this is Fall Risk. Hey guys, I'm Sam Vasquez, and on today's episode of Fall Risk, we have the one and only Josh Evans. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing awesome. How are you doing, Sam? So far, so good. It's been a long day filled with a lot of stuff, but I've been excited for this all day long. Um, Before we get into the nitty gritty here, I just want to mention that to everyone listening that Josh, you are also a podcaster. Can you tell us about your show? Give us a little bit of a breakdown. Uh, I had a show called The Content Clearinghouse, which ran for 75 episodes uh, with my co-host, Brett Chisholm. And it was a... uh, it was a content profiling show where we would take some piece of content, movie, book, video game, something like that, that we loved. And we would just deep dive into why it's the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, we haven't recorded in a while. I think it's been about maybe about a year since we've recorded. But there is a possibility that we might be bringing the show back. Uh, everything is up on you know all, all your podcast apps. So if you're interested in content and things like that, also we talk a little bit about skydiving and flying planes and things like that. It's the content clearinghouse. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna drop that link in the show notes for anybody that wants to listen. Um, it is a really cool show. I've listened to about ten episodes now, like just the oh, latest nice. the latest ten episodes. Um, I like that Brett talks so much about Marvel stuff, which is pretty funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That's one of our favorites. Yeah, huge Marvel fan over here, so it was pretty cool listening to that kind of stuff and getting everybody else's take on it. Um, it's a very cool show, so if you have a chance, go out and look listen to it. It's really super cool. Motivate them to like get back to it because it's a it's a really cool premise. Um, I also was told by a few people that I was supposed to ask you about what the obsession was with Nickelback. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think like most humans, I hate them big time. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I did start learning a lot about Nickelback at one point so I could hate them more efficiently. <laughs> And that's that's about as far as the obsession goes, okay. and it just kind of spiraled into a a joke. And uh, I, I I don't think that I am unique in hating Nickelback though, so I don't oh, think no. that's a hot take. <laughs> I don't know if I I don't know if I hate Nickelback, but I'm pretty indifferent to them, I guess. Like you know, as yeah. A band. But but I'm sure like if I got more into it and I found out more stuff about it, I would probably lean a little bit more towards towards your end of the the spectrum. So <laughs> once at the wind tunnel. Um, one of my it was just like a first time flyer and at the end of the session she she goes has anyone ever told you you look like chad kroger lead singer oh, no. of nickelback and i was like oh no and she goes i meant that as a compliment and then i go oh well then thank you <laughs> oh no that's awesome that's super <laughs> hilarious oh man all right so um josh's time on the podcast is going to be split into two separate episodes this is part one We're going to drop part two a little bit later, but in part one, we're going to be focusing mainly on outdoor skydiving, whereas part two is going to be focusing on his experience in the wind tunnel. So just because there's so much to talk about and I don't want to leave anything out, um, we're going to break this up into into two parts. There will likely be a little bit of crossover, but like I said, I'm going to try and keep uh, the focus to each uh, episode in the separate parts. Um, So to start, tell me a little bit about your skydiving background, Josh. How many years do you have in the sport? How old were you when you started? That kind of stuff. I was 21 when I started skydiving. I just, this month, I just hit 22 years of skydiving. So I have officially been skydiving longer 
than I was alive before I started jumping, which I thought was kind of a crazy statistic. Yeah, I when I started, I mean, I was just a total psychotic madman idiot that <laughs> honestly, I would not have expected to live this long, especially looking back. Because I think like most people, I was probably, you know, a hazard to myself and everyone else around me. And it took me a, a several years to get past that before I, I kind of started to realize what skydiving actually is. And I, I think, I don't know, you may be in the same boat, but in the beginning, you know, you're just so into like the rush of it. Mm -hmm. And then later you start to realize that it's, there's more to it than that. In fact, that's kind of the part of it that I try to tamp down. You know, I, I'm not really looking for the rush when I jump now. And I've had a, a realization later in life that I think what people that have longevity in sports like this, they're not adrenaline junkies. I feel like it's really an addiction to suppressing adrenaline because if I ever feel adrenaline, I, I know something is wrong. Oh yeah. That's a, that's a fair way to look at it. Yep. I started, when I was 21. And like I said, total madman. And, uh, the way I got into it was kind of cool. Like I, I used to work uh, in college. I worked at a bungee jump park and uh, the uh, the managers there bought everyone skydives for <laughs> Christmas bonus. And I only worked there for about two months and I had no idea what I was getting into. So I had never been on an airplane before I jumped. And uh, when I went to the drop zone, you know, I, the first thing I see is someone hook turn, swoop, <laughs> pop up over the bleachers mm -hmm. do some crazy trick on the other side and then run it out and i was just like so blown away because i don't know what i thought but i felt i definitely didn't know you could do that mm -hmm. I, I just thought like everyone just did a tandem and that's all you did and so when i saw that and i realized it was a sport i was just super jazzed on it and then uh i did a i did the skydive the bonus uh, Christmas bonus skydive. Mm -hmm. And when I landed, they said, Hey, you know, if you go again today, it's only 90 bucks and it counts as your AFF level one. I was like, I don't know what that is, but let's <laughs> do this. So within the first day, I'd already done two skydives and they had me signed up for the course. Nice. So you did a tandem first. Yeah, I, I did two tandems in the same okay. day. All right. And where was this? What drop zone? Skydive Dallas. Okay. So what do you remember from that first experience, that first skydive? So the, uh, the plane ride up, that was, to me, almost as mind-blowing as the jump because I'd never been in a plane before, and I definitely never sat next to an open aircraft <laughs> door, and I was right up next to the door, you know? So the whole ride up, I was just, like, m totally mind-blown. <laughs> and then the main thing I remember from the free fall is my frat hat strap hitting me in the cheek the entire sky. You wore a frat hat? That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And then it was just like, da, 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 in the cheek the entire time. And so when the parachute opened, my face was hurting so much. And I was still, I still thought like, oh, I have to do this again. So I knew it was like something amazing if mm -hmm. I was able to, you know, put up with being beat in the face with a leather strap for a minute straight and then open and want to go immediately again. Yeah. So what was your first, um, your first, was it AFF? Your first AFF jump? What was that like? Yeah. So I did, um, yeah, I did those two tandems. They counted that as AFF level one. So on the second jump, I did like practice touches and altimeter awareness. And then uh, 
my first AFF jump was level two mm -hmm. and that one went off without a hitch and everything was going great until level three. And I had, uh, again, I think like a lot of people failed level three and that was, uh, it was basically like a pull issue. I went back to deploy and as I was trying to pull, I was actually grabbing the, in the uh, main side instructor's altimeter, it's like, what, what the? <laughs> trying to rip it off. And they gave me like three tries and they dumped me out. Ooh. And that was, I mean, I was like, so upset and heartbroken yeah. for failing but i think ultimately in the long run failing that was an awesome tool because then when i was an instructor years later if i had to fail someone mm -hmm. i you know you you have like you can tell them it's okay to fail i failed my level three a lot of people do and i'm your instructor now so yeah this doesn't have to like stop you you know as long as you have the drive to keep going mm -hmm. i i uh, draw on some of that same stuff for when I'm doing AFF, uh, when when I have to have those hard talks with uh, students too, as well. Like I failed my cat C, my third my third jump the first time, so it's like I get it, man. I understand. Had you already been working at the tunnel by this point, or what? What point did you start working at the tunnel? Oh, I didn't have any experience with tunnels until probably a decade in. Oh, I, okay. Uh, Really not until I wanted to get my AFF rating, which may have been actually about eight years into jumping. Okay. Um, yeah, so when I first started jumping, I think Flyaway may have been the only tunnel. And then the Paris tunnel came along somewhere, you know, like in mm -hmm. the early 2000s. But I didn't have access to any of that. So when I wanted to get my AFF rating, which mm -hmm. was in – that might have been – yeah, I guess that was 2006. So about six years into jumping. Uh, I went to the Paris tunnel for 10 minutes. Which, you know, if, you, if you've, <laughs> if you're a skydiver, you've flown the tunnel, you know that you're not really going to make a ton of progress in 10 minutes other than just <laughs> learning what a tunnel is. Mm -hmm. And so it, all it did was just introduce that concept to me. And then okay. I pretty much went into my AFF, like, you know, raw natural flyer, which is not the greatest way to do it. <laughs> There's a much better system in place now. And that's do a bunch of tunnel time before mm -hmm. you want to do any kind of significant thing in skydiving. Yep. I get it. Okay, cool. Awesome. I did not know that. That's awesome. Um, what are you currently rocking in terms of a wing? Like, what are you, what are you jumping these days? I've got a Valkyrie 79. How do you like it? It's one of the most amazing pieces of technology <laughs> in skydiving. Okay. And I haven't, I haven't jumped a lot of, you know, I haven't jumped like many Icarus canopies or anything, but the, the Valkyrie, I don't know. It's just, there's nothing like it that I've ever been under the, the way the range it has for s slowing down and floating, like out floating, you know, Navigator 210 or, you know, it's a swoop canopy. And then the opening characteristics are just so amazing. It opens like a machine every single time. Like I've seen a Valkyrie open, not mine, but uh, when our team got new Valkyries, uh, my teammate Mickey on the first jump, he uh, deployed with his one of his toggles unstowed. And it just took a little bit of extra time to open. It didn't spin. It didn't dive or anything. And I came from like a stiletto background. <laughs> so that kind of stability really blows my mind. Yeah. All right. Cool. I like that. That's awesome. Um, so you talked a little bit about your AFF rating. Do you have any other ratings in skydiving as well? Uh, well, I don't currently have any ratings in skydiving. I let them all lapse. But, did you? Uh, I... Did you have ratings at some point? <laughs> yes, I did. did you have? Uh, I had AFF and uh, Sigma Tandem, and then also I flew video for a long time, which is not a not a rating, but you know it's still like a qualification. Okay, so you were a full time instructor for a long time. 
Yeah, I moved to Colorado in 2004, and uh, I moved here to be a Packer, and I really just wanted a way to get out of Texas, and you know, so that was a great avenue. And then after a year of packing, or maybe two years, I was like, man, this sucks a ding dong. I got to do something else. So I got, uh, I got coach rating, and then uh, after about six months or whatever, you know, went and got an AFF rating. And then for several years worked at Mile High Skydiving Center as a AFF and a video flyer. Okay. What what uh, was the motivation to get your instructor ratings to begin with? Was it just money, or was it to just keep moving up the up the chain? What was the what was the reasoning? Yeah, really, just to do anything other than packing. <laughs> my uh, man, my hands, my back, everything. I mean, if did, have you ever worked as a packer? Oh yeah, I was a packer it's, for like four years. Ooh, I get it. <laughs> it's rough. But it was great motivation. And, you know, I saw like all of my friends do an AFF and everything. And, you know, that looked like way more fun. And, uh, you know, I, I guess actually the the brutalizing of my hands was all the motivation I needed. <laughs> but I'm glad I worked as a packer for a few years because now, I mean, like packing my own parachute, I'm sure, you know, you can put it in the bag and get it on your back again in like three minutes, mm -hmm. which I never would have been, really been able to do without working as a packer for a few mm -hmm. seasons. Yep. I feel you. Um, it's a really good foundation. Cause not only are you, you're, I mean, yeah, it's hard work. It's awful. Like super underappreciated job on the drop zone. But, uh, if you're anything like our drop zone, you know, where you're packing and the instructors are always hanging around, you get to hear everything. You get to listen, you get to like gain all this experience and all this knowledge just by listening to things. And if you're working full time, you're always on the drop zone too as well. So you see everything too as well. It might not be happening to you, but you can at least like, um, gain more knowledge and more, uh, know how, you know, just like being present on the drop zone, watching things happen. And so it's a really good foundational, uh, place to be especially as a young person you know like as a you know 20 something 21 22 year old you know like it's it's a really good starter job for being in in skydiving if if that's your intent to like be a skydiving instructor great starter position you know yeah it's i definitely uh as much as i disliked it while i was doing it i really wouldn't trade that time because you know without that without that baseline mm -hmm. And just the knowledge you get, like you're saying, from just being in the packing hangar and listening to everybody talk, you know, it would have been way harder to do everything yeah. else that I wanted to do later. Yep, I get you. Cool. Awesome. Uh, what do you like to do outside of skydiving and flying, like tunnel flying? What kind of hobbies you got? What are you into? I've had so many hobbies, but I think <laughs> I've had a – I kind of like have a 10-year lifespan on hobbies usually. Okay. Um, I grew up skateboarding, and then uh, when I got into s skydiving, I stopped skating because I didn't want to get hurt and not be able to skydive. Mm -hmm. you know, way more likely to get hurt skateboarding. Yeah. And then um, I flew uh, racing drones for a long time. Um, I have a one wheel, which I love. Uh, <laughs> that's one of my favorite things ever. And I have a lot of passive hobbies too. I mean, if anybody checks out the podcast, you probably realize that I'm a total content nerd. Um, I just love reading. I love movies. Video games is a hobby that's persisted for my entire life. Mm -hmm. It's always been there for me, never let me down. <laughs> and uh, I have two kids, which I guess that's not legally a hobby, but uh, <laughs> I do spend a lot of time with them now. And that's probably the, the only thing I've been into as much as skydiving is just having these kids, which mm -hmm. I never thought I would be into at all <laughs> until I had them. It's crazy how it changes your entire perspective on life. Oh, dude, I bet. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about it a little later, but but so save it, save it for later. But uh, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, 
the total overhaul on your life it must be. So, um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll touch on it soon. Um, what about, uh, I'm going to not say this correctly because I've never really done it. RC flying, RC helicopter flying. Weren't you into that oh, for yeah. a really long time too? Yeah. The racing drones. Okay. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think it was in 2017 i saw there was some video of these these french dudes flying racing drones through the mm -hmm. forest and uh you know it, it looked like the speeder bikes in star wars mm -hmm. and i know a lot of people got into flying racing drones like have you seen uh the drone racing league it was on I espn mean, for a while yeah like just like minimal amounts like nothing in depth by any means that like that stuff just looks so amazing like a way that another way you could fly without having to go through all the rigmarole that it takes to get into the sky with mm. skydiving. Cause as, as fun as skydiving is, there's so much waiting and just like so much not skydiving that goes into it. And so I got into building and flying racing drones. And then for a while I was sponsored by a, a company called tiny whoop. They make these little, they're like a three inch racing drones mm -hmm. and they're fully acrobatic you know like you can fly them indoors and you can do flips and all kind of crazy stuff so once i had kids that's mostly what i flew because i could just sit in the house and fly them while you know babies mm -hmm. were were sleeping <laughs> i remember the tiny whoop i wasn't sure if that was you or if it was a different company way back in the day so like definitely definitely remember that um awesome uh what's your favorite thing about skydiving oh coaching <laughs> okay yeah coaching. yeah that's when I think of when I think of skydiving and I think of flying now, like I, I always have like a coaching mindset and okay. I've spent the last few years, I've spent so much time when I'm jumping, just like coaching one-on-one -on -one with a student. And I take a lot of students that I fly within the tunnel. And then, you know, if they want to do a, a day out the drop zone, you know, just take that transfer the skills to the sky. But outside of that, I would say uh, probably competing and MFS flying okay. MFS is, one of the most awesome skydiving disciplines and I could do that all day every day I man I wish we had more of a more of a group of people out here to that were more interested in doing that because man it sounds like the only reference I have for it out here are Mikey and Lissy you know like they're the only ones mm, that do yeah. it they're the only ones that have done it for a long period of time um so it's it looks like so much fun and it looks so complicated and so uh challenging like man i really wish we had more of a, a base out here to like build off of so <sighs> <sighs> yeah i i think that uh so two-way vfs and mfs both kind of get miscategorized mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think of the two-way events as like four-way light which it really isn't. I, I've competed a little bit in four-way. I, I wouldn't say my knowledge base is nearly as strong in four-way as it is in two-way, but uh, from competing in four-way, I realized that most of it, there's a, there's a lot of set ways to do things. You know, there's engineering that's kind of established and mm -hmm. it you use kind of the same engineering over and over. And then in the two-way events, the engineering is so much more fluid. You know, the the engineering is like the the real art form in the two-way events mm -hmm. and uh, especially in the sky in mfs where you're mixing it's mixed formation skydiving so you're mixing flat and vertical disciplines which is something that's kind of like a uniquely skydiving event mm -hmm. you know it's really hard to do that in the wind tunnel 
but in the sky, you know, going from head down to belly with the the crazy speed change that you get while you're doing that, that's the the kind of thing that you kind of need to be out in big open environment to do. Mm-hmm. And then the coordination between the inside flyers and the video flyer in two ways, other than maybe artistic, there's nothing else that's really that involved for the video flyer. Yeah. You know, the video flyer in a lot of events is just kind of sitting in position mm-hmm. and you're, you know, you're flying in the center of the screen, but with two way, it's all these fall rate changes, belly outs, like intentionally kind of corking the team. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, yeah, it's incredible. Just going head down to belly is one of the coolest things to do in the sky. Um, can you elaborate on what that term engineering means for anybody that doesn't know? Yeah. So, uh, in all of the FS disciplines, the formation scattering disciplines, you get a, uh, a draw, which is basically points pulled out of a dive pool. And with those points you have to just figure out the most efficient way to get from one to the next and with uh with two-way there are so many combinations so you have you're you're essentially engineering like a grip plan where you're deciding like we're going to grip here and then we're going to transition and then we're going to grip here and we're going to use a cheater grip so like as we transition we'll both hold hands and come up Mm -hmm. together and all of that kind of comes together and you know to be what the engineering is you're you're literally like constructing your strategy and dive plan for the skydive and you're hoping that the engineering and plan you come up with is better than the other teams and also that you can pull it off better than the other teams yep i remember when we first started getting into vfs at our drop or at our tunnel um when mikey was really introducing it to us and making us learn the dive flow and all the different points and whatnot and our our strategy i guess at the time was just to do the points as they were written and i remember having my mind be completely blown (laughs) when he introduced like the cheats for certain certain moves like anytime you would go to a joker or or from a joke you know like like just introducing that cheat like oh that makes so much sense that makes things so much easier (laughs) you know so having like that makes everything so much more i don't i don't know if it necessarily makes everything so much more but it definitely makes things a little bit more achievable i guess yeah um speeds things up makes you more you know, makes everything a little bit faster and um, you suddenly have more fun and you're, you're getting more points, you know, it makes it much more accessible, I think, to some people. Yeah, we, uh, Mike Silva and I, back in the day when they were creating the uh, tunnelflight.com page and they were, uh, they were making videos for all the different uh, disciplines, we shot video for the two-way dive pool mm-hmm. and uh, we flew everything in the video we flew it completely vanilla we just flew it like the pictures because we didn't want to reveal any of our trade secrets because <laughs> there's there's so much engineering that like you would go to you'll go to an event and you'll see like some team do something that you never even thought of before and you're like oh my god i can't believe this never occurred to us and then you would steal that and you take it back and you like add it into your your little engineering pocket mm-hmm. but uh we didn't want to reveal anything up front so we th- we flew everything like what you're saying you know just the way the picture showed and then we'd we would show up and like fly everything in a completely different fashion mm-hmm. and you know it, it it was cool like with uh mike silva and i competed for several years in the tunnel and uh over that time period there were a few teams that were kind of like the top of the game and every competition there'd be like some new engineering trick that would show up and then the next time all those teams would be using that trick it's a it's very much a puzzle it's an art form you know it's like you said it's very very much an art form uh puzzle like problem solving yeah i think of doing vfs it's kind of like 
it's like cogs in a machine mm -hmm. and it's just getting those those two cogs to work together as smoothly as possible with the, the least amount of separation mm -hmm. and uh you know you want to try to stick to like a, a metronomic beat yeah. so you're the entire time it's just like tick 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 mm -hmm. keep the same speed throughout the entire thing yep we're gonna kind of deviate from like you know disciplines and and whatnot like what is the coolest jump you've ever been a part of or one of the coolest jumps i guess maybe not the coolest but what do you think what's what comes to mind i've done a couple of world records which were really awesome those aren't those really don't qualify as a single jump though um that's a, a whole year of skydiving yeah mm -hmm. um but those, I'd say if I had to pick one, I, I would maybe pick the first record I did, the uh, 2008, the 108-way, because up until that point, you know, I'd only, I worked at the tunnel for about a year mm -hmm. when I did that record, and before working at the wind tunnel, I could just kind of barely get away with flying head down, like I had like some serious pizza arms going on and didn't know what I was doing with my legs. And then after working at the wind tunnel for a year, that opportunity came up to go do the uh, world record and just being able to take the things that I'd learned at the, at the tunnel, which I kind of felt like I was starting over completely like the, you know, the eight years or whatever that I put into the sport before I got into the wind tunnel, mm -hmm. they almost didn't like apply because I, I had started over my knowledge base when I started flying, you know, four or five hours a day. And then uh, to take that and go to the world record, that was kind of the, the moment when I when I realized that skydiving was actually opening up to me. Like I was going to be able to do things in, in skydiving that never seemed possible to me before. Mm -hmm. That's super cool. So that was a yeah, that one was a very significant skydive for me. Yeah, I bet. Man, someday, someday I'll get there. I didn't ask you actually. Uh, how many jumps are you currently sitting at? Like what? What? Where? Where are you? Do you know? I've got about 8,000 jumps. I haven't, uh, I haven't logged in quite a long time, but estimate wise, I'd say I'm, I'm sitting about 7,500 or 8,000. Okay. Damn. That's impressive. Let's talk a little bit about competition history, like your competition history. I know it's pretty extensive. Um, so if you would like, maybe just give me a brief overview of the different types of things that you've participated in, like both skydiving and uh, tunnel, if you, if you want, and then, talk about maybe who some of your teammates were yeah definitely um i started my first competition was uh it was at skyventure colorado which is now iFly denver uh they hosted an event called the summit challenge i think that was 2008 it was the first year i was working there and uh mike silva and i uh we competed in artistic and vfs and i think we may have placed third in artistic uh, right behind Andy Malchiotti's team. They, they were first, obviously, but we were just a, a few spots behind them. <laughs> and uh, and that, to me, like that, again, I was kind of like doing that record. I realized, oh my God, we can actually do things in this sport. Mm -hmm. And so um, I took a I took a year-long break from working at the tunnel. I moved to California in 2009. So that kind of put a, a hold on my competition. But then when I moved back in 2010, they were... Uh, Eloy was hosting the uh, Gauntlet, which was a big VFS competition uh, at that time frame, and so Mike and I went and competed out there, and we hadn't we hadn't done anything in a year really, mm -hmm. so uh, we went there, and again we placed third, and that just kind of opened the floodgates for us. 
So once I moved back, you know, we officially formed our team collective and we started going to just about every tunnel competition we could find. You know, we went to Paraclete three or four times. We did the entire iFly competition circuit for maybe like four or five years. And over that time, we were constantly battling with the Paraclete team. Uh, they were, it was the the kids of the owners of Paraclete and they were 100% the top tier of the VFS uh, world at that time. So we were always just battling back and forth with them. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if we ever actually managed to beat them, but once <laughs> they retired, because of all that experience of, you know, fighting the best team in the world, we just like, boom, just like skyrocketed <laughs> up the leaderboards. And so we had a really good run of just winning gold, gold, gold over and over and over until uh, I think we may have disbanded the team in about 2014 or 15. Okay. And around that time, uh, I started another team with uh, Rusty Lewis and mm -hmm. Mickey Nuttall, uh, Revolutionary War, which was a two-way MFS team. Okay. And we had a, a good three-year run. Well, four years. First year we lost. And then uh, we had three years of, again, battling Flight Shop, the best team in the world. And we uh, we got silver the first year. Flight Shop didn't show up the second year, so we got gold. And then we got <laughs> silver again our last year. Okay. How has um how has competition like different different events changed over over the years? Like I don't know if you have anything to reference off of in recent recent years, but just in your time, how did it how did it kind of evolve? How did it change? Oh man, that's hard to say because when we were competing that much, it was basically like frog and boiling water. You know, we didn't really I didn't notice a whole lot of change as it was happening, but I think probably the most unfortunate change is it feels like those competitions are kind of dying off now. Yeah. You know, it, the tunnel in, in Colorado Springs just hosted tunnel nationals this mm -hmm. year, which was really awesome to see it come back because it seemed like for a while the uh, tunnel competition was just kind of tanking, but I am really excited because they're, ho they're hosting that competition again next year and Ooh. i believe i'm gonna have to call out mike silva on the podcast but uh <laughs> i believe we may be dusting our team off to go back and compete again all right so over the course of those years with tunnel you know the it kind of the focus on it kind of died off that might be a thing of the past they might mm -hmm. be bringing these competitions back and then the evolution of going from the tunnel to the sky it's the skill level that mm -hmm. is the the biggest evolution just every single year you see more better teams like people that were not competing before or you know teams i'd never even heard of and they come out and they're they're scoring you know like podium level uh podium level points and i think that is directly tied to the tunnel and directly tied to that history of VFS in the tunnel and then the way that it evolves when you get in the sky you don't have walls anymore mm -hmm. you can open it up and start going vertical to flat I mean that's another huge evolution in yeah. the VFS world because that was something when we started competing never even occurred to us you know everything is separated into two camps you have flat rounds and you have vertical rounds and having it all come together in MFS is just like a, a truly it's a unique skydiving experience that 
is amazing, and I hope it continues. I would love to see that get more play on the uh, on the world stage. All right. I mean, fingers crossed, man. I, I, you touched a little bit on accessibility, you know, like about how, how that's changed the name of the game. And that was, that was what I was going to, I was going to add there. You know, I, I, I have very little reference for competition. I've never been to an official competition. I've only ever done the stuff that's like local to us. Um, so I imagine like accessibility has completely changed the name of the game and like completely changed the stakes and how good you have to be just to like even go to one of these competitions. So. Yeah, there's so many good teams now too. So many, uh, so many tell instructors teaming up and you know just creating like assassin teams, which is really <laughs> awesome. It's just cool to see that. Yeah, that accessibility now. There's tunnels everywhere, and even people, you know, non-instructors, just enthusiasts, mm -hmm. the ability to go and you know get coached by someone that knows what they're talking about, and then come out and be like a threat at a competition is really cool because mm -hmm. for a while you know it was a lot of a lot of it was people that worked at wind tunnels those are the people that were the you only had yeah. to worry about the the 10 other people across the country that were doing you know yeah i get it exactly and now it's pretty much everybody just mm -hmm. time time and money and you can be one of the best flyers in the world. Yeah, that's insane. Although, I mean, if you think about other areas of life, though, too, you know, like the best of the best, like the they're the best of the best because they have the accessibility to the tools that they need for those, you know, and like a wide variety of people in any one little area don't necessarily have those, have the time or the money or, you know, like the, the same kind of accessibility. But with the advent of the tunnel, you know, and the expansion of like tunnel game across the world, like it's completely revolutionized. Man. And you're always, if you want to be top of the line, you're always trading time and money for that, or you're trading essentially like your employment options mm -hmm. to be that. Because a lot of these things, you can get employed in that industry and you have access, you know, like in the tunnel, getting a job in the tunnel is just about the best way. Like if you want to make those jumps, mm -hmm. if you want to become one of the best flyers, the best competitors, it's hard to beat that Yeah. or just be a millionaire. Man, I wish I would have been t born 10 years ago because, dang, <laughs> it would have been so much easier to get where I want to go. <laughs> they win everything. The kids win everything. <sighs> All right. Moving on. <laughs> uh, have you ever participated in any swooping competitions at all? I have not ever. Uh, I've never really swooped like that. Now, okay. I, uh, for, for a long time, I was doing like a bunch of, you know, big turns and things. But mm -hmm. as I've gotten older got kids more responsibility i pretty much only do 90s now but having uh having that experience growing up uh just you know swooping for years and years now i feel like i could take a 90 halfway across the drop zone but when i was i talked earlier about being a hazard to myself and everyone else around me whenever i was a younger jumper and i i got really lucky when i had about 200 jumps i basically hooked in and uh I didn't know what I was doing. I was doing toggle whips, you know, just like a total idiot. And uh, I came, I planed out kind of low and there was a berm in the, in the landing area and I hit both of my knees on it. Slingshotted me over the top and I rolled through the landing area and I laid there for like 10 minutes. It was this alternate landing area. Nobody knew I was out there. Mm -hmm. And so I was basically just like trying to figure out if I was injured or not. And uh, after about 10 minutes, I was able to get up and I just hobbled to the car and drove off and no, never told anybody what happened. And then the next week I, I was like, man, I should probably get someone to coach me. Yeah. So uh, I got my buddy, John Chisholm, who is just a legend 
back in the Skydive Dallas early 2000 days to start giving me just some rudimentary canopy coaching. And, you know, from there, I was just, I was always just trying to find someone that's better than me to teach me how to not kill myself skydiving. And luckily, you know, I had never, never broke anything and never had any metal installed, which uh, I, I feel like that's a pretty good metric for successful canopy piloting, you know, just mm -hmm. that's where I want to keep it. I'm not wor worried about going crazy. I just don't want to get hurt. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. What kind of goals do you have for yourself moving forward for skydiving? Like where you want to go with it? What do you want to do moving forward after all these years? Right now, my focus is primarily coaching. I don't get to jump as much as I'd like to. I'd say a, maybe a, a big goal to do, you know, maybe one or two events a year, which is all, about all the time I have for getting away and going skydiving. Um, I just want to be a better coach. I want to be, I want to understand more about the mechanics of flying. I want to be able to break things down like to a fundamental level. Mm -hmm. And I just want to, I want to be able to look at someone flying and know these are the things you're doing right. And here's the, here's the 15 things that you need to do better. And I feel like now my brain from coaching for so many years in the tunnel, is just kind of programmed that way. Like I can't help but see that now. Mm -hmm. You know, I see like, it's almost like a red and green overlay, like on a person, like all the things that are, that are right are green. And then there's all this red and I'm just, <laughs> I want to fix all that red. How do you resist it though? Like, how do you resist just saying <laughs> all of that? What do you do? What do you, you just, what do you do? It, it depends on who it is. If okay. it's a student, I just tell them all of it. Uh, <laughs> if it's not a student, um, I think at least in this area, most people know that I'm a coach. Mm -hmm. So if people do come and ask me things, then I will tell them what they want to know and then uh, encourage them to come fly in the tunnel with me. Um, but it's just, there's so many people, there's so many things. I try not to give any unsolicited advice unless I'm specifically recommended to someone by mm -hmm. one of my students. I just uh, ball it all up and I just <laughs> see red everywhere. I just imagine it going off like pings in your brain as you're walking around like ping, ping. Like just, that's funny. Just that's exactly what it's like. Bottle yep. it up. <laughs> All right. That's cool. Like I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about what your, your goals are for yourself and how they've changed over the years. Just, you have so much experience and so much knowledge and so much time and you've done so many different things in skydiving. I'm like, where do you go from there? Is it just for fun or is it to, so, so it's, it's cool to hear, like, you just want to keep better, getting better and better as a, as a coach and as a teacher. Like, it's very cool. I, I'm happy and like pleasantly surprised that you haven't lost like the drive, I guess for it, you know? I love skydiving. I love flying the tunnel. I might even like flying the tunnel more. That might be an exposure based uh, mm -hmm. thing because I get to fly in the tunnel way more than I get to skydive. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in the summer I might go out like every other weekend to jump, but um, I'm flying at least three hours a week in the wind tunnel. Uh, sometimes four or five hours. I coach on Wednesdays and Thursdays. I cram in my 25 to 30 standing reservation students that mm -hmm. fly with me every single week. And so I'm in the tunnel a ton and I'm just, uh, you know, I just love getting better. Like I'm trying to learn things more about myself and the better I 
get at coaching and flying, the more I realize like how many things I've never even attempted and never even had any exposure to learning how to do. Mm-hmm. And that that's one of the coolest things about the sport is I mean, you can be the best in the world and there's still things that you don't know how to do things that may not even have been invented yet. Mm-hmm. It's just the, just that ultimate imagination that is present in flying. It's, it's a, like a lifelong, never ending pursuit. Yeah. And also the fact that it is essentially the greatest superpower, the superpower <laughs> power that everyone wishes they had. Like you ask most people, <laughs> what power would you want? Yeah. Flying. And that's what skydiving is. I mean, it is, it might be one of the reasons that there are so many egos in skydiving because you're essentially in superhero school and eventually you don't feel like you're in school anymore. Mm -hmm. You feel like you're just a superhero and that can corrupt a person (laughs) that can turn someone into a total asshole. And so it's, it's, it's important to keep in mind that no matter how good you are, there's always somebody that's going to be better than you. You know, it's, yeah, that's the easiest way to tamp down an ego Mm -hmm. in in the sport. You just got to have a little bit of self-awareness and realize there's somebody better. Yep, that's that's something I've had in the back of my mind for 14 years is like, it doesn't matter how good you get, there's always going to be stuff. I think that's probably one of the biggest motivators too, though, in terms of like personal progression is like, there's always going to be somebody better. better. So like, keep, keep going, keep going, like keep pushing. You want to be as good as this person and then this person and then this person, you know, like just at least for me personally, that's, that's where I get my motivation from. And that prompts my next question. You talked a little bit about how like you really, um, you're really interested in like using like your imagination for this kind of stuff. Like really like the, the wonder and the whimsy, you know, part of this, uh, part of this sport, like, is that the biggest motivator for you or is there something, is there a person or is there a group of people? Like what motivates you to just keep doing this and to keep pushing yourself after all these years? Now it's really all about my students. I just want to, I want to be able to provide them with the, the best knowledge base that I'm capable of, of understanding mm-hmm. and I want to be able to progress them as fast as possible. And what's so cool about having that exposure to like so many students is you never know who is going to be somebody in skydiving. <laughs> there, there are so many people that I have flown with in the beginning and it's just like, this person's a problem student. And then eventually they're, you know, they're competing, they're doing world records. They become instructors. They, become like swoopers competitors Mm -hmm. you just never really know who is going to make some kind of impact and that's another reason why the egos in skydiving to me are so offensive because people you know like people bag on other flyers because they do something dangerous or they're not as good as whatever who who knows there's a million reasons but it's all all just you know you're talking about time and money or working in this in the sport any single person can go on and become like some legend and write their name in the sky. And that's one of the cool things about the sport that there's really no limits, you know, mm-hmm. like any, anybody can do it. You just either sacrifice eating <laughs> and you don't do anything but skydive or become a trust fund baby. Yes. That's, well, <laughs> that's there's no middle, <laughs> there's no gray area. It's one or the other. Nope. <laughs> like You're either at Joe Schmo or you have money. <laughs> like, exactly (laughs) total dirt bag starving (laughs) or you start off rich (laughs) oh no um so there are a couple of things i'm supposed to ask you about there are a couple of like requests 
of things I was supposed to talk about. Here. Okay. <laughs> there, I'm not going to name All names, right. but I'm sure you can probably figure out who, who said what. But um, there's a situation uh, where you save someone's life in skydiving. Um, you, I mean, you sent me the video for this, so I watched it. Uh, it's a crazy video. Um, dude didn't have an AED on, like, life or death situation. Tell me what happened. Like, break that down for me. What was the What was the event? Oh, man. This is... It's a very unique situation. Like, this doesn't happen. You hear about these, like, these, these kinds of situations, like, few and far in between. So it's very interesting to talk to someone, you know, a few years after the fact, after you've had some time to reflect on it and about what happened and, like you know, what could have changed that, that kind of stuff. So tell me, tell me what happened in the event itself. So this was definitely a defining moment in my life. Uh, I had, before this happened, I had about 1500 AFF jumps and I worked in the wind tunnel for about two years. And I think without that experience, this would have turned out completely differently. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was, this happened in Texas and, uh, we were doing high altitude jumps. We we're going from 22,000 feet. And this is something that we did at this particular drop zone a lot. We do it all the time. And uh, on this jump, we were, uh, they were handing out masks and there were, I think there were five people and there were four masks. And I was immediately like, I don't think this is a good idea. And mm -hmm. the response was, we do this all the time. And I was like, okay, as long as I have a mask. And so on the way up, I'm on constant oxygen, but, uh, my buddy, the guy that passed out, he was sharing a mask with someone else pre-COVID. So it was, uh, they were not saturating their bloodstream. You know, if, mm -hmm. if you've done high altitude jumps, you know, you need to be on oxygen at 10,000 feet. You need to be saturated because you're going to have a time period from the time you take the mask off until you get down to about, you know, 17,000 feet mm -hmm. where you're in the hypoxia zone, you're in the death zone. So take the masks off climb out, jump out, and I'm diving down to my buddy. Uh, I get down on level with him, and right when I get there, he rolls over and starts spinning on his side. And my first thought is like, what is going on? This guy knows how to fly. He knows how to sit fly. Uh, there's no reason why he should be out of control like this. And then as he passed by in one of these revolutions, I see his face like he's just like seizing out. Mm -hmm. And I was, you know, that was when I realized like, oh my God, this guy is unconscious. And I look around, and there's no one there. So he's, there were six of us on the jump, I think. And uh, no one was there because as he was spinning, he fell over on his side. So he's kind of spinning in this no man's land of fall rate. He's going about 140 miles an hour. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're on your belly, 130 is about max mm -hmm. you're going to get. And if you're free flying, it's really hard to get below 160 miles an hour. But luckily I had, bunch of AFF jumps and I'd worked at the wind tunnel. So I knew these crazy body positions like sit daffy. Plus mm -hmm. I'm kind of like, I'm not, I'm not tall, but I'm lanky. And so I have a lot of, you know, wingspan. Mm -hmm. So I was able to fly in this big sit daffy and match the fall rate. But that was kind of just the first challenge because now he's spinning mm -hmm. and I'm upright. So you don't really have the same leverage you would have if you're on your belly mm -hmm. doing an AFF spin stop. Yeah. So I'm just trying to stick my arm in and just see what I can do to keep him, you know, slow him down and not get knocked out. I can't get a hold of him. And so at one point I grab onto him with my feet and I'm holding on to his shoulders, but then he just like torques out of my, out of my grip. And then as we get to about 8,000 feet, there was a lucky break and, uh, 
he kind of rolls over to his feet and stands up for a second and then falls over again. And when he did, he basically like flew right into me. I was about like three feet away and I grabbed him by the yoke. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying at this point, I'm trying to roll him to his belly, but he's kind of starting to come to. And I learned later, um, I got as a sidebar, I got a call from the uh, Air Force. I guess they're like the hypoxia lab. Okay. They were using this video as a training aid. Oh my and, God. Uh, my, my buddy that's in the Air Force is like, hey, I know that guy. And so they called me and I talked to them like in front of the class and uh, just told them about the experience. And what they told me was when you start when you start to come to from hypoxia, you're still effectively you're unconscious, but your body is trying to revert back to whatever your last conscious act was, which mm. for him was sit flying. Mm -hmm. So he's punching his legs down and that gave us, you know, gave me the opening to grab him. And now I'm trying to roll him to his belly and I can't get him to his belly because he's fighting me. So my, my plan was I'm just going to grab his reserve handle, just roll off the side and dump him out. Mm -hmm. And right as I start to do that, the DZO who's on the jump with us, he slams into us mm -hmm. and ah, helps us like AFF him to his belly. So at that point, we were like, okay, we know we got him. But then the DZO looks over at me and he holds up his right hand. He's got the sky ball in his hand mm -hmm. that we were going to be jumping with. And, and he's like, what do I do? Just throw it. <laughs> so he tosses the sky ball and everybody else on the, on the jump goes after it. Yep. And so he dumps him out. Boom. He opens up. We all, we land in the peas. He lands right, you know, five minutes later, right next to us. And he's like, what happened guys? I just woke up under my parachute. And we were like, oh my God, you got to see this video, bro. You're never going to believe this. Jesus. And then four months later, you know, we, we thought it was crazy, but we also thought if we hadn't been there, the AAD would have got him. Oh, he did have an And then AAD. four months later, well, he had it in his rig. Yeah. But I get the, I get a picture four months later. And it's a picture of the cutter that's not routed properly. Oh my and that's God. when it all really hit that like, we actually did save him. It wasn't just like, we weren't just the backup to the AED. He would have just cratered in if we had not got him. And I don't know that that was the, I think that was really the moment where it kind of just, it kind of just changed a lot of my outlook on life yeah. about like how thin the margins are yeah. and about how, how easy it is to not be alive. Mm -hmm. And also it, the, the reason it was kind of a defining moment for me was it helped me realize like things that I'm actually capable of that I wouldn't have even assumed the opportunity would have ever ar arisen to mm -hmm. do something like that. Like I, I think when I first started jumping, I don't know, did you ever have the stress fantasy about someone like doing a gainer out the door and knocking themselves out and like, Oh, point break. I'm going to go after him. Yep. And the kind of thing that never actually happens and yep. then it happened and that changed a huge perspective on safety and what can happen in the sky and what can happen anywhere really. Mm -hmm. And just trying to, you know, be ready when things happen. Yeah. Be, be capable. I've had a handful of, um, I call them freak at like the freak incidents, you know, the things it's exactly what you just described. Like the things that you don't think about have happening, you know, but, or not necessarily, no. I'm going to rephrase that. The things that you don't expect to happen, but you fantasize about happening, you know? Like Stress they're, fantasy. Yeah, they're, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I've had a handful of those types of experiences where that's not the norm. 
It's not the norm yeah. incident that happens. It's it's a it's out of left field, you know. And I'm of, like a crazy AFF thing yeah. or something. Um, no, I mean yes, yes, obviously crazy like those those types of experiences. But just me personally, like things that have happened to mm. to me as a skydiver, um, I've had things like that happen. Um, and it really it puts into perspective that like literally anything can happen. The things you don't even prepare for, the things you don't even know can happen, happen. You know, all of the like the things that I'm thinking about right now, like those are not things that I would have ever expected or no one had even told me about the potential like that had the potential to happen. Um, so it kind of brings me back to like uh, prevention. Like if you go back and look at it or, or think about the the, um, the story you just told me, at what point like could you have prevented something from happening? Like you, you talked about the masks right right to begin with, like that is something that you got like that person could have. They didn't think about it not happening or they didn't think about, you know, something three steps from now. You know what I, I'm not explaining. Break the this, chain. Right? Yeah. Like the, the chain of the chain of things that that could potentially happen. Like if you would have just broken the chain at that point, you know, like all the other things. Really. That was the demarcation line right there. Yeah. Like the, the thing with the masks. And uh, we shared the video several years later with uh, I love skydiving or whatever. Join the team. Yeah. Yep. They put it on Friday freakouts mm -hmm. and you know, we had debated for a long time about sharing it, but then we decided like, if we, if we do share it, we want people to know why it happened, like to use it as like a, a, a learning tool. Mm -hmm. So we told them that story about the masks. And then if you search on YouTube, if you just type in hypoxic skydiver, it's one of the first one that pops up. It's a guy in a purple suit. And if you look at the description, it's all about that. Like they, yeah. they tell the story about the masks and about, why you don't do that mm -hmm. and you know why it's basically everything i just described you know about and like you were saying about breaking the chain because mm -hmm. skydiving if you get to the point where the accident is already happening usually it's too late mm -hmm. you know it's the the way you become a, an old skydiver is just breaking those chains over and over and over yep. the whole time and setting up uh protocols like set yourself a hard deck if you're going to do a a hook turn that you don't ever turn below mm -hmm. that's how people hook in they break yep. that chain You're like oh it's only 50 feet low i can make it and then you hook in and break your legs mm -hmm. so it's all about it's all about prevention yeah all the way across the board yep. it's about it's about like ha doing the same stuff like over and over again and yeah like prevention man like uh, every single one of the experiences that i'm thinking of like that happened to me personally like there were always at least three instances before the actual accident happened where I could have prevented the accident from happening itself. And, mm, yeah. and it's always a bunch of things that you don't think about. And then suddenly something crazy goes wrong. Like you could have done any one of the normal things that you always do on every single skydive. And because you missed this one and then this one and then this one because of complacency or, or for, for whatever reason, like now you're in, now you're in a, uh, a totally different situation that you were never prepared for, you know? So have you ever jumped with your chest strap misrouted? I have not. <laughs> Knock <laughs> oh, on wood. Knock on wood. I have not done that. How did that go for you? I, w I was doing a, I got about like 50 wingsuit jumps and I was just borrowing a wingsuit and borrowing a rig. Mm -hmm. And this is like probably like my, my 30th wingsuit jump. And I jumped out. And when I opened up the wings, the whole rig just, it just Ooh. opened up like to my shoulders. Ooh. And I looked down and I saw my chest, I mean, the classic misrouting where you just go around the double back and you rubber band in. Mm -hmm. and so I saw that. And I was like, oh. yeah. And so I collapsed the wings in and 
undid it and redid it whoosh, and then whoosh, start flying again <laughs> man that was that was such a total mind fuck it just that like messed me up for so long because i i thought surely that wasn't a mistake i was ever going to make mm -hmm. and then made that mistake and you know now i'm just like an adamant check of threes yep. guy just all the time in the mm -hmm. plane just touch metal and exit the plane and touch metal like in free fall mm -hmm. you know just making sure that that does not ever happen again because that was definitely a moment where could have died i mean super easily you're in a wingsuit too on top of that like the balance is all off now and like you've got all these big extra like amounts of surface area that you're fighting and your your legs are completely oh my god i can only and i didn't really know how to fly it at oh. 30 jumps like it got really lucky oh my god that's, you want to hear a story that's uh, nuts. Yes. crazy plane story yes that was gonna be my next question actually it's <laughs> gonna okay, be the plane good. was gonna be the plane story the plane that started on fire let's hear about yeah, that yeah so this is other than the, the hypoxic jump, this is the other craziest thing. This might be one of the craziest things that has ever happened to me. Uh, this was in uh, Skydive Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. And um, so we had a 206. It was basically brand new. I think the engine had like 30 hours on it or something. And uh, I was shooting tandem video. And the uh, we, we took off. We started flying out towards the ocean, towards Vandenberg Air Force Base. So... At about 2,000 feet, the entire plane, it just like, like drops out of the sky and then comes back up. And then this big black oily smoke starts shooting down the right side of the plane. And then the pilot turns around and he goes, we're going down. Oh, my <laughs> so, God. Okay. And I, and I reached up. I was like, oh, my God. Ding. Turn the camera on. Definitely want to have this on video. And so he calls into Vandenberg Air Force Base and declares an emergency. And they tell him. You can't land here. <laughs> we're doing military tests. And he's like, fuck you. We're doing it anyways. And so they have a 15,000-foot runway. It's shuttle recovery runway. Mm -hmm. So it's a really hard target to miss. And luckily, it was right off the nose. Yeah. Now, I guess a, a lot of, from what I've heard, a lot of like fatal plane crashes happen when they, on takeoff, there's some accident or some incident. They mm -hmm. turn around trying to make it back to the airport and burn in. Mm -hmm. So luckily, we had a straight shot to another runway. And uh, the the pilot is just like fighting the controls, and then he starts diving down towards the runway to build up speed, and planes it out. And about ten feet off the ground, right when he planes out, the the prop just goes touching and just stops spinning completely. So just total dead stick. And uh, I mean, he totally nailed the landing. You know, he, a little bit of a crosswind. He's like side slipping it in and <laughs> touches down and bounces a few times. As soon as on the ground, I opened up the door, and then as, as soon as it was slow enough, I jumped out, ducked under the tail. Like, I don't want to be anywhere near this exploding airplane. Mm -hmm. So they brought uh, – the MPs came out, and they brought dogs out, and they searched the plane. They did background checks on everyone. Mm -hmm. The people, the two tandem instructors – or two tandem passengers were this Russian couple. So they did a, they did a lot of – they really talked to them for a long time, and then – they had uh, people had to come from the drop zone and pick us up, and then the MPs escorted us off the base. Mm -hmm. And so we get a uh, we get the plane back like a week later, and they start doing an investigation on it, and they find all these little pieces of glass inside the motor. And so they they the uh, AMP on the airport they do an investigation there, and they found that 
there was that plane and a few other planes that had been sabotaged by some disgruntled somebody, some some who or whatever. And so uh, that plane was basically like he, someone had put glass beads into the motor. And so the motor just exploded and the engine looked like on the right side, there was a whole like size of a grapefruit. And then on the left side, there were all these little pinholes that shot through the motor. And that was the, uh, it, basically like they had to rebuild the entire plane. And then we nicknamed that plane Delta Tango for death trap, <laughs> oh which God. really pissed off the DVO. Cause he'd be like, you guys are taking the 206 me. Oh, you mean Delta Tango? So I'm gonna fire you if you call it Delta Tango. Well, it did almost kill us. It was a 206. It was a Cessna. Yeah. Oh my 206, God. Yeah. So, so it was not just this plane that had been tampered with. It was other planes on the drop zone that had also, oh my God. Apparently like other, <gasps> like other private planes or whatever. I don't know if any of them flew. I just know that that's what I heard about other things that happened and that's what happened to that plane. So I heard others were also tampered with. What? Okay. Are you okay with saying what drops on this was or no? Do you want to keep that yeah, up? Yeah, Scott, I have Santa Barbara. I said it earlier. Okay, Scott, I have Santa Barbara. <laughs> I'm sorry. In all that information, yeah. I completely I completely lost track of like where we were at. Like I was just no, it's not so, their so fault, horrified. At, at, okay. All right. Yeah, that was. Oh it's basically God. like a private or a public airport. Did you know, they, they just operate out of there. Did they ever figure out who had sa who sabotaged the planes? Uh. I think so. I don't know. I, I didn't ever hear specifically like if anyone got arrested, but I'd imagine there weren't a whole lot of people working there. So I'd imagine that they probably caught the guy. That is fucking nuts. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Oh my God. I'm horrified. I'm equal parts horrified and fascinated by that. Story. I don't want to put this thought in anyone's head, but if you're ever, uh, I'm going to anyways, <laughs> if you're ever sitting in the otter net, in line with the prop. Oh, Are yeah. you ever afraid the yep. prop is just going to shear yes. off and cut the plane yes. in half? I have that okay, thought good. every single time I'm on. <laughs> I, every single time, especially on the raised benches, because you can just look and see it. It's uh, not as some. It's not something I think of like when I'm on the the benchless, you know, um, otters, because you're just sitting down on the floor the, the whole time. But I have that thought every single time. I'm like, well, I I'm dead if I sit. Line. If I sit here and this happens, I'm dead. Like, oh yeah, yep. I just watched this uh, documentary. Uh, called the cold blue it's like uh it's about uh b-17 bombers mm -hmm. in world war ii and this pilot was talking about them getting shot down he he and like four other people survived and he said that when the plane would get shot down you basically had like 30 seconds to get out because the plane would just start diving and it'd get up to like 450 miles an hour you're pulling like six g's like glued to the seat Said so if you didn't get out within those first like thirty seconds, there's no way you were just going in with the sh with the plane. Jesus. Think about that all the time. That stupid prop shearing off the otter, just getting pinned to the plane. Man, skydiving's crazy. Yeah. Right? Oh my god. Especially the plane <laughs> part. So so I have this thing that happens to me in the winter, um, where I like just get caught up in my own thoughts and I start thinking about. Um, I, I, there's probably a term for this. There's like an actual term for like this train of thought. Um, but I just start thinking about all the crazy shit that can happen, <laughs> you know, like, and it weirds me out. And it's like in the off season when I'm not skydiving as frequently and I'm like weirding myself out. And it usually happens really late at night as I'm laying down to, to go to bed, you know, really like the first like 20 minutes of just laying down, trying to like fall asleep. And I'm like, oh my God, why do <gasps> I, yeah, yes. yeah, like, oh my God, why do I do this? Why, why am I, <laughs> yeah, because yep. it's awesome. That's a, I mean, <laughs> 
that's like a testament how awesome skydiving is. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because you really have to accept your own mortality to skydive, mm-hmm. and you have to be, you have to be okay. At least a little part of you that there are like some chains that you can't break, like that thing with the plane. We mm-hmm. couldn't have broken that chain. It didn't have everything yeah. to do with us. We were just like innocent bystanders, and mm-hmm. so yeah, that that kind of thing. When you get out of the plane, you're like, oh, this is like where safety is for a little bit. You know, that's how I feel. Like I could take care of myself in free fall, but the plane, you're just totally at the mercy. Yeah. Yep. There's, I get it. I get it. There's a lot of stuff that's out of your control. You know, a lot of ex- like extra factors that you can't, you can't do anything about other than just roll with it and try and be as but good, as well prepared as you can be. In that situation though, if he would have, like, why didn't you guys get out? Like, why didn't you? Oh. I didn't touch on that. Okay. So it was about 2000 feet, but, uh, the reason I didn't get out, I could have get, gotten out, but I had gone to Vandenberg air force base a bunch of times, gone surfing and stuff there. And when you're walking on the base, there are signs everywhere that say, stay on the trail, unexploded ordinance. So <laughs> I guess it was like a firing range or something. And so I was just like, man, this is, it's like being over a minefield is yeah. what it seemed like. It probably wasn't that dangerous, but that was my thought at the time. And then by the time I had, by the time I had thought that we were already at like 1200 feet. So I was like, okay, there's no way, there's no option now. I'm not getting out this low. Mm-hmm. So that little bit of delay of remembering seeing that sign and thinking about that put me below safe exit altitude. Oh my God. What's the lowest you'll get out on your reserve out of curiosity? I mean, I guess if I had to, I could maybe 1500 feet. Okay. I don't think I'd want to get out much lower than that. Yeah. Unless it was the only option. Mm-hmm. But I mean, what am I, what am I saying? It's, it, you could say that it was the only option in that scenario. Yeah. It's just so hard to know when, when something like that happens. Cause you think like, you're going to be like this decisive mm-hmm. decision maker, Yeah. but something like that, like an intrusive thought like that comes up. And by the time you, have analyzed that mm-hmm. then it might be too late like that's totally what happened i thought that i was like i don't know if i should get out oh we're at 1200 feet now it's too late now so i was kind of like stuck to being in the plane at that mm-hmm. point i get it Whew. okay well on that note <laughs> we're gonna end part one on that crazy motherfucking story <laughs> oh my god um tune in really really quickly for part two it's going to be dropped really really fast maybe even same day so so be ready for it it's coming um we're going to end it right here thank you so much josh we'll see you back in the next one for everybody listening have fun stay safe blue skies